generally it takes between two and six years, I'd say. That's generally what it takes. Um, and during that time, you're living on, you know, very little money, £35 a week, roughly. Um, you're allowed to work. You're allowed to travel. You're living in accommodation that's provided for you that's often very poor quality, three, four people in a room. It's not pleasant um, whilst you wait. And so I don't know if you saw today, there was a, a kind of story in the Daily Mail by some Tory MP saying, you know, oh, this is why people want to come because they get a four-star hotel and a mobile phone and cash in hand. I don't even get cash in hand. First of all, it's 75 quid a week, but it's on a card to stop people buying luxuries. You're not allowed to buy tobacco on that. You're not allowed to buy alcohol. You're only allowed to buy the things you absolutely need to physically survive. So you might have to do this for two to six years. It's quite a long time, you know, for any of us to survive that. So, you know, there's lots and lots of problems with the asylum system, not just in the UK, but everywhere. Um, but this idea that kind of people pitch up and it's like, yeah, you just kind of get the golden egg. <laughs> I tell you, it couldn't be any further from the truth, <laughs> really. It really couldn't. Hi everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Before we get started, I just have a few short messages. First off, don't forget to like, share and subscribe this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow and help me get on bigger and better guests. Also, don't forget you can pre-order my book, To The Moon, The GameStop Saga, right now by following the links in the description below. We've also got a few quick sponsors for the show today. Comedy is a really crucial art form especially in a world where government power seems to be rapidly expanding. It's one of the most effective ways to speak truth to power. And to that end, today I bring you the Behind the Bits podcast with Scott Curtis, a podcast about the tragedy and triumph of stand-up comedy. Every week, Scott has a new comedian on the show to talk about inspiration for their comedy, the struggles of the industry, and how they find themselves stumbling into the world of comedy. In one of my favourite recent episodes, Scott spoke to Liz Meal, a New Jerseyite who began comedy at 16. The show can swing between hilariously funny and incredibly poignant at times. She spoke about realising the problems you had as a child in retrospect, smoking weed as a waitress, mental health, breaking rules and the wild rollercoaster of performing on stage. You'll get behind the bits wherever you find your podcast. Apple, Spotify, and more. That's Behind the Bits with Scott Curtis, the best podcast to get to know the people behind the jokes. Cryptocurrencies are all the rage these days. Over 100 million people now own cryptocurrency, some for the memes, some for the long-term value, and some for the underlying technology. But there hasn't been a coin or token that has emerged yet that truly replaces cash or currency. This is where Dash comes in. Dash is digital cash, a user-focused cryptocurrency which you can spend anywhere, anytime, and any amount for fees less than one cent. With hashtag DashDirect, people can spend their Dash at over 155,000 major US retailers and get a discount and money back into their Dash wallet. No banks, no fiat, just pure crypto with an average saving of 5%. Anyone can participate in the network and Dash is widely available for purchase around the world. The ingenious masternode network means sending any sum of money around the world is as simple as tapping your phone at your local grocery store. So you can say goodbye to slow transactions, complex international account numbers and high transaction fees. Dash gives you the freedom to move your money any way you want. Grab a coffee, split a check or pay your phone bill. Dash moves money anywhere to anyone instantly for less than a cent. Links for everything will be in the description below. So check them out and then please enjoy the podcast. Sure. Get going. Sure. Okay, so I believe we're started. Lovely. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I'm here with Professor, uh, Professor Heaven Crawley. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's very, very much a pleasure to be here. No problem. So um, you're here basically to to walk us through the, um, 
I don't want to say migrant crisis, but it's playing into the, the narrative about it. But the, all of the headlines about the apparent crisis of migrants crossing the, the channel. Um, and so essentially, so why don't you give people an idea of who you are and what your expertise is before we, um, dive into this? You broke up a bit there. Why don't I give people an idea of what? Sorry. Who you are and your expertise. Oh, who I am. Well, that's the easy part. Um, so, yeah, my name's Heaven Crawley. I'm a professor of international migration at Coventry University. I also direct uh, the MIDEC Hub, which is the large, world's largest migration research project, looking at migration in the global south, which is where most migration takes place. So I think your point about crisis is very interesting because, in fact, the numbers of people coming to Europe and the UK are absolutely tiny compared to the numbers of people seeking asylum in other parts of the world. And that's probably the first misconception is that everyone imagines that everyone's, you know, coming to the UK or coming to Europe. And the numbers in Europe and the UK are much smaller than elsewhere in the world. Okay, so why don't we start with what is the cause of this? Yeah, of the the people trying. Where are the people who are seeking asylum coming from? Well, they're coming from a number of countries that have, to be honest, been the producers of refugees for a pretty long time. And you won't be surprised when I tell you what they are. You know, Afghanistan, Syria, Iran, uh, Eritrea, parts of West Africa, um, countries which are pretty much unstable in terms of their um, demographic, their kind of political situation and the, the, the conflict, but also tied in with that is usually huge economic insecurity. So one of the problems we have is we often try to distinguish between refugees and migrants, and in fact, in law, you kind of have to do that. But in reality, in my experience of doing research, and I did interviews with 500, or my team did interviews with 500 um, people who were arriving during the 2015 so-called crisis, you know, people, people are coming from situations of conflict, but often the reason why they've moved is because, you know, they've lost their job, they can't buy food for their family anymore. You know, you might say that's an economic reason, but it's an economic driver situated in a, in a conflict context. So I think this kind of messiness of why people leave um, is something that's often kind of ignored. Um, but the countries primarily that people are coming from, you know, they're not countries that you'd go on your holiday or even necessarily that you'd get to, frankly. Um, and, you know, those people may have left those countries years before they arrive in Europe, because what they often do is they just immediately move over the border to try and get safe, or they may even move within the country to try and get safe. And then once they're kind of safe or away from the immediate problem, then they've got to work out what they do with the rest of their lives. And that includes the lives of their children who they're often traveling with. So, you know, most of the people we talk to who come to Europe, they've been out of their country of origin for years certainly months, often years, try and work out where best they can rebuild their lives. Um, so by the time they get to France, France is not the first place where they could claim asylum. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a problem when you look only at France because they're not flying to France and then claiming asylum in France. I mean, that's not what's going on here. So, you know, I think the journeys are really messy and really complicated, and that's part of the problem. You know, people often move, for, for example, across the border from Syria to Lebanon or to Jordan. Then they find themselves in a situation with literally millions of refugees in the case of, of Lebanon. Um, and they've got no food. They've got no possibility to work. They've got no education for their children. You know, why would you leave everything you had to make a better life and then be in a situation where you can't make a better life? So basically, people at that point, at some point, an opportunity comes along or they think, well, you know, there's never going to be a future for me here. I'm going to try and somewhere else. And that's what they do. They move from place to place looking for a place to be safe. UK is often at the end of the road. Mm. Okay. So when people are coming through Europe from somewhere around the Middle East, generally, and they're, they're say, they're arriving into say, Italy, Greece, somewhere along the Mediterranean coast or, um, somewhere there and then they're they're moving across europe um then they're either going to to a lot of people are going to germany they're taking a lot of refugees um or they're coming to france and eventually um a portion a small portion but a portion are trying to cross the channel to the uk w mm -hmm. what is their legal status when they're in europe when these when yeah i, I hate I hate using the word they because they're people um yeah, but like no, what is the what is 
what is the status in Europe? Like, are they, are they, have they already, have they got like asylum seeker status somewhere else in Europe or have they, are they sort of, I mean, un, okay. It really depends because there is no obligation under international law to claim asylum anywhere in particular. You know, you claim asylum in the place where you think you'll be safe and for different people, that'll be different places. Um, so there isn't any obligation to apply in, uh, for asylum anywhere in particular under international law. But what the European Union did, um, I don't remember exactly the date, but about a decade ago, was basically decided that once you got into Europe, you had to claim asylum at the first place that you came to, that where you could access a process. And they introduced something called the Dublin Regulation, which meant that if you then went to claim asylum in another place, you could return, be returned back to the place where you'd originally claimed asylum, or what they call a safe um, third country. Now, in reality, people often find it really difficult to be able to access the asylum process in some places, partly because the authorities, frankly, make it quite difficult, but also because, you know, they don't have any resources, they can't speak the language. So all of those things mean that they may not claim asylum in that place. But also they may decide that that's not the right place for them. You know, if I was an asylum seeker, if I was a refugee, I can't speak any languages apart from English, a little bit of Italian, not much. I would go to a place where I could speak the same language, where I thought I had a possibility of being able to integrate more quickly. And if I had friends or family or connections in that place, that is also somewhere I would go, because I would imagine that those people that I know would help me to integrate. Maybe you know, put me up for a while, um, introduce me to people, show me around the system, meet with my kids and help them to get into school. So I think if people have got connections in the UK for some reason, and we know that many of the people in Calais who are coming over the channel have got connections, you know, there are children there who've got parents in the UK, then those people have a motivation, a really strong motivation to move to the place where they think they will be the safest and where they think they can rebuild their life. So, you know, it's a combination of um, complicated procedures and systems that people don't necessarily know about, but also reasons for people moving on. If, you know, if people could claim asylum and immediately get protection and get what they need, they wouldn't move on. But the point is that they can't, and that's why they do. Um, and that's why some people end up trying to come to the UK. But it is some. I mean, the vast majority of people don't come to the UK. It has one of the lowest rates of asylum seeking in Europe. So, you know, it's, it's definitely not the case that everyone's coming to the UK. But those that do, in my experience, and I've interviewed lots of people about this, have some reason. Either it's language or it's family, or frankly, they've been told by the smuggler that if they pay a bit more money, they'll get a better deal. That doesn't mean they will, but they've been told that they will, and they trust what they're being told, you know, as you and I would if we were in that situation, because what else do we have to work on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Desperation drives people to, to trust people they probably shouldn't. I think is the the the, the moral there. Um, so I want to come back to to sort of more Britain specific um, laws and and how people um, go about uh, seeking asylum. But maybe it would be useful to get like a, a definition for people who who have maybe heard like asylum seeker and seeking asylum bashed around. Like, what does that mean? And like, what are the, the sort of international definitions of, of how and why people can seek asylum? So basically, the idea of being able to seek asylum comes from a convention that was set up just after the Second World War, when basically Europe had a huge sense, it came from Europe, Europe had a huge sense of guilt about what had happened to the Jews during the Holocaust. And so in order to prevent that ever happening again, in order to prevent a situation where Jews were being turned away from countries because they weren't seen as being genuinely in need of protection and then they went off to the gas chambers. In order to stop that happening, they set up the 1951 Refugee Convention. And it's a very long document, but there's essentially one paragraph that matters. And that paragraph says, you are a refugee if you are outside your country of origin, you can't be protected in your country of origin, and you are in fear of your life or in some way in fearing harm because of a number of different reasons. It could be your race, your religion, your color, your political opinion, or something called your social group, which is a quite vague term that's being disputed legally. Essentially, if you're outside of your country, and you don't feel you can be safe, you have the right under international law, international human rights law, to apply for somebody else to protect you. 
And once you do that, once you go into a system, you become an asylum seeker. Now, lots of people can't apply for asylum because they don't have access to the systems. They would still probably call themselves refugees because they are being forced to move, but they're not in the system. So they're not an asylum seeker. You're an asylum seeker if you're seeking asylum. And that's a legal process. If you are granted asylum, then you kind of become a legal refugee in the sense that your rights have now been recognized and your need for protection has been recognized. But that's a very long process in many different contexts. And so, you know, this kind of asylum seeker is someone looking for protection. Refugees have got protection. But refugees are also those people who are kind of not in the system in a sense because nobody knows whether they need protection because they haven't had a chance to apply for it. Um, so it is, it is pretty complicated, but it is really critical to remember that it's a right under international human rights law. You have it. I have it. If someone persecutes me, and people have sought asylum from the UK or from Ireland, and they've gone to the US and sought protection, I can do it, you can do it, because that's a law that exists for all of us. It's just that we are very privileged, we're very lucky that we don't live in a situation that at this moment in time needs that. But if we'd lived in Europe and we were Jewish, you know, 50, 60 years ago, we might need to have that too. So you know, it's designed to protect anybody who needs it, in a situation where their countries can't protect them, or worse, so, worse still, are actually persecuting them, which is, of course, also what happens. But the really important thing to remember, and this I don't think many people realize, is you cannot apply for asylum until you get to the country you want to seek protection from. So if you're a Somali and you want to claim asylum in France, you have to get to France. If you're a an Eritrean and you want to claim asylum in the UK, you have to get to the UK. You can't go to the British Embassy in you know, somewhere in Addis or in, you know, in a, a country where you've come from and say, I would like to claim asylum under international refugee law. You have to get there first. And that's the problem. Because in order to get there, you probably have to find the service of a smuggler, um, break various different, you know, laws in terms of crossing borders illegally. And by the time, so by the time you get to the place where you're trying to claim asylum, you're an asylum seeker, but you've also effectively kind of irregularly or illegally entered the border because there's no other way of doing it. Hmm. That's a difficult problem. That sounds like a really difficult problem to solve because then you would but get it's in, in it's times solvable of solvable yeah. political will. Okay. Well, right. Okay. So how, so, so say, um, just like, for example, take Syria or say, take Afghanistan for, for, for example. Yeah. And and like there was uh, when the 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 crisis was happening there when when the US sort of pulled out with yeah yeah let's not go there but anyway they they left and yeah. left um, a mess in their wake if if you were able to apply for asylum by going to the embassy would that not cause like an absolute swarming and swamping of embassies in times of crisis. Um, like and, and again, this is not to say that I don't like believe that people don't have rights to try and 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 you know because I would I would hope that I would have the same right and I would you know want that to happen if I was in their position. Um, but like, how can you how can you like tr try to to reform that system without yeah just swamping the assem the the um, embassies of 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 different countries in in sort of more unstable places. Well, I mean that's exactly what happened, of course. You know. Tens of thousands of people went to the airport in Kabul and tried to get out. Um, mm -hmm. And many of them are still there, frankly. Um, but I mean, I mean, there's no there's no easy answer in terms of numbers. But first of all, most people don't leave unless they absolutely have to. I, mean, I would you wouldn't you know, it's a kind of last mm -hmm. last hope, desperate situation. But the alternative, I suppose, it's very easy to say, well, that would be very difficult for people to handle. But the alternative is what we have which is people then well, pay yeah. people to transport them illegally in the backs of lorries, dying in the Sahara. I mean, the stories you hear about this stuff is not just in the Mediterranean or the Channel. The stuff that happens on land is often even, well, you can't really say better or worse, but, you know, I've heard some horrific stories about land travel too because people don't have any choices. So that's, you know, that's the alternative. It's not that, it's not that people going to embassies seeking asylum would be an easy or straightforward answer, but then neither is the alternative. The point is if the mm. people... If people need protection and there's a right under international law to get it, then it's the duty, I think, of the rest of us to come up with a strategy for how that happens, not to kind of blame refugees or asylum seekers for doing what they can to be able to access it, which is essentially what we're looking at. 
People are being mm. punished. People are being vilified for trying to access something to which they are legally entitled. That's the bottom line, because we refuse to set up any alternative system. So, I mean, mm. I, I don't think that, you know, the points you made are very reasonable, but I don't think I like what we have currently. I think I would prefer to try to find an alternative than just accept that this is the only deal. Because I don't think it's a deal that works for anybody. It doesn't work for refugees, doesn't work for governments, and doesn't work for, you know, Joe Public, who's frankly pissed off with the fact that they feel that these things are out of control. So surely it's better to come up with something that works better for everybody than keep on at the same thing that we know is never going to work, because it's never going to work. There will always be conflicts, there will always be people moving. You know, what are we going to do about it? Just carry on as we are? It just seems to me crazy that... We don't want to make things better for, for all of us, frankly. Mm. Excuse my language. But, you know, no, no, don't, don't worry. Trust me. You, you have not got the worst. <laughs> yeah, you've not got the worst language of people who come on this show. Me included. I've been doing this research now for 30 years. And I, I know what the solutions are. You know, they're not straightforward. They're not easy. But no one's even prepared to talk about them. They just want to say, let's you know, build more walls, put more CV, you know, CCV cameras in place, you know, put a net across the channel. I mean, these are just ridiculous ideas, a wave machine in the channel. These are the kinds of ideas that are being touted that get nowhere even close to the crux of what's going on here. You know, they're very simple solutions because they're not solutions, they're a nonsense. But, you know, they're simple ideas that, you know, don't don't work and then they're seen not to work and then governments get attacked again and people get even more pissed off and here we are you know you talk about the current crisis with the the, the channel i i was working in the home office in 2001 when the song gap crisis was happening then again we had the you know the crisis with the jungle this is not new it's just that people are not prepared to really grapple with the bottom line of what we need to do to solve it because they're politically you know I don't know what they are, politically unambitious, but also always thinking about the next vote. And the bottom line is that this, this is not going to get anybody any votes because it doesn't work, full stop. It doesn't work for anybody. And I can't understand why people aren't prepared to take a slightly longer-term view of this. Yeah, so you're essentially saying that the, 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 the ultimate solution is to stop all war and conflict, and that's not going to happen. Therefore, we have to deal with oh, the messy no. sort of fallout yeah absolutely yeah. it's not going to okay. happen well, I mean, you're going to carry on moving so what are you going to do about it are we going to just keep digging, big, building bigger walls and more prisons and you know spending more money on guards that are policing the beaches I mean you know we look at what happened in the, happened in the states it's still happening in the states you can build as big a wall as you like but there's always a place where it can't be built because of mountains or you know it's very remote or people climb over it I mean this is just you know, it's, it's not even an elastoplast on a problem, frankly. It's just spending money and wasting resources on something that can never solve the problem it's designed to address. Hmm. That's what, okay, that's so what frustrates let's, me. Yeah, yeah, I can understand why that would be frustrating, having wor like worked in this uh, field as long as you have. Like, I mean, I'm Absolutely. not not particularly, it's not, it's not a field, an area in which I've, like spent a lot of time delving into the specifics of it. I mean, the I remember, and I still think that the the way we dealt with the the Syrian migrant crisis um, in 2012, 13, 14 was like the biggest moral stain on Europe um, that in its history since like the conception of the European Union. Essentially, like I think it was abhorrent well, the way we dealt with it. With the former Yugoslavia, to be honest, I mean, pretty bad well, with yeah. Yugoslavia too. So, but um, but yeah, I, I think that's right. And look look now at what the Syrians are managing to achieve. You know, the Germans, as you mentioned earlier, they took the most Syrian refugees. And now they've got the highest economic growth in Europe. Why? Because they allowed those refugees to work. They allowed those refugees to use the skills that they had. And the ones that came out at the beginning had a lot of skills. Um, and now they're doctors and they're working in the engineering sector and they're contributing hugely to the economic growth and, and more than that, to the society more generally. So, you know, you have to see you have to see human beings as being human beings, not just some sort of threat to your own security or your own status because in fact those people will contribute in many ways to what your society is whether that's the economy or it's you know the food you eat or the music you listen to or whatever it might be there is nothing that is uniquely english or british about any of this or anything that we do so 
you know, engaging with that history of migration that is what we are as a as a nation is one of the things that politicians could be talking more about. You know, they never talk about this stuff. They always want to talk about the negative and never about the positive aspect. And that means, understandably, that people think that refugees and migrants more generally are here just to take. And let me tell you, I've never yet met a refugee, and believe me, I've worked with thousands in my career who wants to take. Everyone wants to work. Everyone wants to contribute. There are people who don't, as there are in every society, but it's a tiny, tiny minority. Most people just want to be safe, rebuild their lives, get their kids in school, make their dinner, you know, the stuff that you and I, as I say, take for granted. I don't, you know, the dehumanizing that goes on in the UK media about this is is vile and it's toxic and uh, it spills over into all of us, frankly. Mm. To be honest, the, the, the media, the way they do, the way the media portray it, and the way that a lot of politicians and quite more specifically a lot of the conservative party and yeah the brexit party talk about this is such a it's such a skewed view of how how tolerant and accepting the british public are more broadly of people from different countries like it's one of the things that i really stunningly discovered actually during my uh research for my book about brexit was that the uk of of is one of if not in some measures it depends on what polling you're looking at that one of the most accepting countries in europe and the wider world of people from from different countries and, and nations coming to here and living and working and getting on with their lives like we're far more just tolerant generally which is an awesome thing um, and i feel like the way that the migrant crisis gets talked about just makes us all out to be bigots and obviously those people exist right and there's like some something that the politicians feel they can play on there but generally i think people are like if if, if someone wants to if yeah if it was painted in the way you're laying it out is that people want to come here and contribute and set up a life and you know just live i think it would be i think we'd view it a lot differently um maybe i'm wrong about that but i want to talk more specifically about sorry what were you going to say there i think you're right is that you know there is this there's this idea being banded around by the media and politicians that people don't want migration it's not true as you say the opinion polling says exactly the opposite in fact you know not just in the uk but everywhere people are far more tolerant of migration than you might imagine from the way it's portrayed um but when it really pans out is like this you know if you if you say let's imagine you're someone who's not very kind of in favor of migration and no, no i don't really want there to be migrants and then you suddenly then you start talking to them as i have about their own family and it turns out that one of their sons is living in the states and their daughter lives in italy and oh their their cousin is married to somebody from japan and it turns out that they have lots of migrants in their own family and then when something happens in their neighborhood like for example a raid a dawn raid on you know a family and they want to be deported everyone rallies around that family because they're not like other migrants you know they're having this this kind of demonized figure of the migrant and they can't see that in their own family there are migrants. They themselves might be migrants. Um, and indeed, the family living next door to them are migrants. And so it's kind of really detached from what people experience in day-to-day life, which is, let's be honest, most people just rub along. I mean, there are exceptions, but most of us just rub along in, in one way or the other, for better or worse. And that's a very kind of British thing, actually. Um, but yeah, this kind of narrative about people don't want migration and don't like migrants and when you ask people about it, they go, no, no, that's not me. And yet somehow this narrative still is very strong in the political and the public kind of media discourse. So it's um, it's a huge problem how, how people are being misrepresented, but also played in a way. And I think that's, you know, that's because politicians are very good at using this to detract from their own problems. <laughs> you know, it's a really good detraction. I can't get a, get a council house. Oh, it's because of migrants, according to the government. I can't get a job. Oh, it's because of migrants, according to the government. I want a zero-hour contract. Well, actually, it's not because of migrants. It's because, you know, capitalist enterprise is trying to exploit the hell out of you. you know, but no one wants to say those things. Everyone wants to pretend it's just the fault of the migrants. It's very easy. You know, and it's simple and there's no accountability. And there you go, just create a scapegoat. Um, mm. But, you know, people have lots of reasons to be 
pretty pissed off about the quality of their lives, but I can tell you now it's not migrants that are the problem or causing it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely not. So I want to I want to talk a little bit more specifically about what the process is for um, for claiming asylum in the UK. So uh, I, I mentioned before we started, and you said that I, I kind of had this um, kind of had this wrong. That the uh, my my questions were were basically when I was watching the the coverage of this last night. Basically, like, what is the what is the what is the legal method for trying to claim asylum in the UK? And why are people risking their lives ultimately? I mean, the channel isn't quite as perilous as the med, thankfully. Um, but obviously, pe like 27 people drowned last night or two days ago or yesterday, whatever day it was, um, which is, yeah, you never want to see that, especially when it's children. That's, that's awful. That's like yeah. human potential wasted. But, um, what is the like? What is the official route through which people should theoretically try and claim asylum in the UK? And then why do you? Why is it that they're risking the the journey across the channel on the boats? Okay, so let's let's talk about a little bit about the official process. So basically, in order to claim asylum, you have to make yourself known to the authorities, and you have to tell people that you want to claim asylum. So you have to, as I said earlier, you have to be able to get to the authorities to be able to tell them that. Now, some people may be in a country for other reasons, for work or students, and then the situation in their country changes. So they're already in the country. So at that point, they don't need to make a perilous journey. They just need to sort of make themselves known to the authorities and go into the asylum system. Um, and we can come on to the asylum system. It's a very long-winded process and a very complicated and expensive one. But that's the sort of another point. So if... You say, I think you said before we, we started this, you know, can, can people not just claim asylum at the channel? No, they can't because they have to be in the country that they want to claim asylum. So they could claim asylum in France, but as I mentioned earlier, there might be lots of reasons why they want, don't want to do that. Or indeed, that country might make it difficult for them to do that because they don't want them to be there, um, as indeed they do in the UK. So um, if, if they say they arrive on the shores of Dover um, or Kent, they would then uh, most likely be either picked up by or would somehow get to meet someone in the immigration authority, the border force, and they would then make their application. And in order to do that, they would first of all go through what's called a screening interview to find out where they're from and the kind of basics of their identity, like who they are. Um, and then they would have to have a very substantive asylum interview to find out exactly what it was that they were worried about and whether or not they fit that convention in the refugee convention, that, that definition that I told you about in the convention earlier. So are they outside the country of origin? Are they you know, in need of protection from some sort of fear or harm? Um, and all of those things. Um, so so, once, so why, do they, why do they take the, the boat crossings? Well, they can't apply for asylum in France if they want to come to the UK. That's not an option. And interestingly, I'm, I'm sure you saw the stuff today about the French basically saying, you know, pretty propel, keep away. We're, we're not happy with the way in which this is being played out. One of the things that the French are suggesting at the moment is that British uh, immigration officials do go to France and do interview people in France in order to claim asylum in the UK because that would then sort of sell save the problem of them having to cross the channel in order to do that. So we're back to this problem that I said before, if you have to be in the country where you want to claim asylum in order to make that application, and if there are other ways of making the claim outside of the country, then you would be able to do it. You would still have to, of course, then go through the asylum system. And I, mean, I don't know the details of how long it's taking now, but generally it takes between two and six years, I'd say. That's generally what it takes. Um, and during that time, you're living on you know, very little money, £35 a week, roughly. Um, you're allowed to work. You're allowed to travel. You're living in accommodation that's provided for you that's often very poor quality, three, four people in a room. It's not pleasant um, whilst you wait. And so I don't know if you saw today, there was a, a kind of story in the Daily Mail by some Tory MP saying, you know, oh, this is why people want to come because they get a four-star hotel and a mobile phone and cash in hand. They don't even get cash in hand. First of all, it's 35 quid a week, but it's on a card to stop people buying luxuries. You're not allowed to buy tobacco on that. You're not allowed to buy alcohol. You're only allowed to buy the things you absolutely need to physically survive. So you might have to do this for two to six years. It's quite a long time, you know, for any of us to survive that. So, you know, there's lots and lots of problems with the asylum system, not just in the UK, but everywhere. 
Um, but this idea that kind of people pitch up and it's like, yeah, you just kind of get the golden egg. <laughs> I tell you, it couldn't be any further from the truth, really. It really couldn't. Two to six years. Like, what is yeah, taking, I mean, like, what is, what takes so long? Is it? Well, it's, there's lots of different problems. I mean, you know, you, when I used to work at the home office, there was a time, uh, it was about the beginning of the 2000s. I mean, this is not just a problem now. It's been 20, 20 years or so. And at that point, of course, Labour was in power, not the Conservatives. You know, at one point they found in the basement of the home office in Croydon, they found you know, literally hundreds of files in boxes that had got wet sitting in this basement somewhere of people's asylum claims that had not been processed. You know, literally just not even been looked at for years because somebody had put them there and forgotten about them or whatever. I mean, the system is, it's really bad in part because you need legal advice to get through this process. It's not a straightforward process, as you can imagine. And if your case is refused, you have to go to a tribunal. But one of the things that people don't realize is that two thirds of all people that apply for asylum, they get it, you know, because they are genuine refugees in need of protection. And the Home Office gives them protection. Two out of three. And then another 40% of those that get refused get it on appeal because some information hasn't been shown in the original case or something. So, you know, this whole idea that people are coming for the golden egg and then they get, a, you know, they're all bogus, they're all really economic migrants. It couldn't be anywhere further from the truth, right, if you actually look at the data. Right. So... It, but the, the, it's it's baffling to me that, that that you're not allowed to work. I mean, if it, it, like yeah, this, well, this might sound like a, a big campaign about that. And there has been for a long time because you used to be able to work. In fact, it was the the Labour Party, Labour government that ended the right to work. You used to be able to work to be able to support yourself. I think now, if your um, your claim isn't determined for a very long time, you can. But of course, you've got no paperwork. You've got nothing to say that you've got legal status to work. So it's very hard to find employment. And if you get employed, you're then going to be exploited by somebody who's going to pay you very little money, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole system, you know, the whole system perpetuates inequality and it perpetuates people, you know, not being able to be legal. I mean, the, the point is that if people can't work. They may end up working illegally because they need money. Um, and the whole system from the beginning to the end, frankly, you know, forces people to behave in ways that they don't want to behave because they have to survive it. You know, it's not a good system. I mean, even, you know, if you if you get refugee status, which is like, you know, finally you're vindicated, you get refugee status, you know what happens next? You get kicked out of your accommodation. So somehow, you know, you've got to find a flat, you've got to find a deposit, you've got to find your references, you know, all the stuff that's really difficult about finding a flat or a house in the UK, you've then got to do from scratch with no work record, because you haven't been allowed to work. No, you know, no possibility of kind of, you know, integrating society. So you don't even have any references and you don't have a deposit. And people charge like two months deposit now, right? It could be a thousand quid. So, you know, it's, it's just so much more complicated and painful than people imagine. You know, lots of people who are really poor and struggling in the UK and feel really marginalized, they feel threatened by these people. But these people are sharing exactly the same crap system as the rest of them, frankly. You know, they're being given a really bad deal, even though they are entitled under international law to be able to do that. So I just wish someone would be honest. I wish governments would be honest about what's going on, because I think it's really unfair to expect people to be sympathetic if they only get their information from these very skewed perspectives of what, what actually happens. You know, no one leaves their house, their family, their job, their home, their community, their culture, their language for 35 quid on a pay card and a cheap mobile phone. Nobody does that. So, you know, 35 quid to you or me, we'd go into a, a cafe or something or we'd, you know, go to the cinema for a night. We don't think twice about it because we're incredibly privileged by comparison. This is not why people come, believe me. Yeah. So, yeah, it. it the, to be honest, with the the work thing is really, really, really just weirds me. Like, not weirds me out, but I'm just confused. Like, also, if I were the conservative government right now, I would literally be building like an HGV dri tr HGV <laughs> drivers <laughs> training <laughs> center at Dover and just like waving people in, being like, "Come on!" Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there are so many ironies in this. I mean, the, one of the reasons they they stopped people from working was that they had this notion that it was a pull factor that people were coming to work pretending to be refugees, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, there's all these kind of 
false assumptions about what's driving people. But then, you know, you've got the, it's been a while since we touched it. So let's, let's hit the topic of Brexit, shall we? Because Brexit is a classic example of your ironies. So, I mean, we've been talking, you mentioned the HGV situation. A lot of our HGV drivers were European, um, are European. And, you know, when there was a shortage, they got offered a visa for eight weeks. You know, who, who moves their house and their family for eight weeks? No one's going to bother. Um, but, you know, this, this, one of the questions that I think people aren't really grappling with is why are things across the channel so bad now? They weren't this bad five years ago. They weren't even this bad three years ago. They're bad now. Mm. Why are they bad? They're bad because of Brexit. So when, when the UK left the European Union, it also left the Dublin regulation that I mentioned earlier, which is that regulation that allows people to be sent back to the country that they first came through, right? So Boris Johnson is begging the French to take back refugees and migrants, but we, the UK, withdrew from the, the regulation that makes that possible when we left the UK and left the EU. So lots of people voted for Brexit on the basis that this would help us to control immigration, right? This was one of the big cards that was played. But in fact, it's exactly the opposite because the European Union had this Dublin regulation that kind of doesn't always work and it has all sorts of problems with it, but essentially it allows countries to return people to another country, which we can't do now under, under that convention. So it's, a, it's there's, there's so many ironies to, ironies to all of this because it's, I can't believe that people in these positions of power and with this amount of resource and money can't work this stuff out. Do you know what I mean? It's like if I can work it out, you know, just sitting at my desk and I'm not in government, how can other people not understand that this is the consequences of their actions? I find it bizarre and quite frankly, well, I'm, not, I'm, I'm no longer sure whether people are stupid or deluding it deliberately I, I don't know because you can't conceive of the fact that people wouldn't have understood this you know it seems inconceivable so that's why macron's really not having any of it because the uk withdrew so you can't have it always you can't withdraw withdraw from some of it and have the bits that work for you that's not how it works right so that's why the french are having none of it basically is there is there any country that's part of this Dublin regulation that's not part of the EU? No, no, it's a it's an EU regulation. So by yeah, definition, yeah. No, I was just, you have to be part of the yeah. EU. Mm, okay, so like uh, I assume there's no chance of them granting an exception and including us in it. <laughs> well, I mean, why? Let's imagine we're sitting in France here. Why why would the UK be allowed to get away with doing the bits that it wants and not the bits that it doesn't want? I mean, the point is that those those countries cooperate and communicate with one another around this legislation. And, you know, they have done for 10 years or more. So you kind of can't have it both ways, really, I think. I mean, that's, that's what I'm imagining they'll be saying right now. But I don't know. It just, you know, there, there are other solutions. There are still other ways of dealing with this. But I, I just think that the in, increase in numbers across the channel is, I suspect, because smugglers are telling people, if you get to the UK, you can't be sent back, and they'll be charging them a lot of extra money to be able to do that. Because that's we know from talking to people about their relationships with smugglers that that's what smugglers do. You know, they give them three or four choices. Well, we can take you to here, we can take you to there, we can take you to there. This one will cost this amount. Imagine you're going into a sort of, you know, uh, a travel agency, you know, which which option do you want? This has got a bigger boat, a safer boat. This has got a dinghy. You know, this has got less people on the boat. This is what was happening in the Mediterranean crisis. You can pay 500 euros to go on this boat with 20 people. If you haven't got enough money, you can pay less money, but there'll be more people on the boat. You've got more chance of dying. I mean, that's the kind of decisions people are having to make, you know, can I do this? Should I leave somebody behind? Should I try and find some more money? Should I write to my family so I don't have to get on the boat with more people? You know, these are not straightforward decisions, but they're often driven by the kind of financial interests of the smugglers. So, you know, the smugglers basically didn't exist before these policies. These policies create a market for the smugglers. Without these policies, there wouldn't be smugglers because they couldn't make money. And the harder it is to get across the borders, the more money the smugglers charge. So, you know, you want to take away the power from the smugglers, create some legal entry routes that immediately moves, means there's no market for the smuggler trade. So, you know, there's lots of different things you can do if you want to. 
But, you know, there was a, you know, people think, well, if you do that, then we're kind of giving in to the migrants. No, we're just, you know, having a system that works, which seems to me very sensible. Mm. Sorry, I'm sounding increasingly so, cynical as we go through this conversation, because, you know, the more you talk about it, you know, the crassness of it just is at so many different levels. Mm. Well, I mean, it's my belief that at least talking about it helps to... Um at least put the idea in different people's heads that it's not all unsolvable. Like, do you know what people are, what the smugglers are charging? Like what is, what does someone pay for getting across the channel? I don't know about the channel. I'm sure there's stuff on it, but I just haven't done any work on it at the moment. I mean, in general, in my experience, it's between a thousand and two and a half thousand pounds, roughly per person. I mean, that's certainly what it was in the Mediterranean crisis. And I imagine it's, it's probably quite high at the moment because although the UK thinks the numbers are high, they're not that high compared to what we've seen in the rest of Europe in the last five years. So it's a shorter route. It's more comparable to the Aegean route, you know, across from Turkey to Greece, because that's, you know, if you go, I, I've been on Lesbos, I've watched people do that crossing. It's about 20 kilometers, I think, uh, in places. So the channel is a little bit longer, but not that much longer. But I know people, so it may be between 500 and 1,000 because it's a shorter route. But as I say, there's all sorts of variables that go into it, size of the boat, how long you've been waiting, you know, whether you've tried before. Lots of different variables go into the price, but it's not cheap. It's a lot cheaper to get on a Eurostar for 60 quid, put it that way. <laughs> you know, but of course, you can't. So, yeah, well, I mean, problem, that would right? be a little... Yeah, yeah, it'd be a little easier if they could just get on the Eurostar. Um, but... Well, then, you know, so, not just in Europe. We're, we're very privileged with our passport in the UK. I mean, we can pretty much go anywhere in the world with, you know, we might have to pay for a visa for 30 quid. But, you know, and occasionally it's more difficult. You know, I've I've been to Russia and, you know, it's slightly more in the process. But, but basically, we can pretty much go more or less wherever we want. It's a very, you know, it's a privilege of birth. It's not, a, it's not anything I worked for. You and I didn't work to get that. We just happened to be born in the right place at the right time. Um, so, but lots of other people can't. So, you know, they, they could just get on a, a normal boat, a ferry, get on a, a train if there was a system that allowed them to do that, if they could have their cases looked at properly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, so, so last night when I was watching the, the, the coverage of this, and I mentioned this before we started, I was getting a bit frustrated with it, was that they were interviewing um, a lot of refugees in France who were waiting to try to hope to come to the UK. There was actually, there was one guy who said he tried three times already and the boat had like capsized or been caught or sent back. And I was like, man, this guy is like seriously determined. Like, unless you were really desperate, like you wouldn't still be trying at that point. <laughs> um, but so they were, they were talking to some families and they were saying that um, the UK is better for keeping families together, that... Um, that there was uh, there was one or two who had mentioned like the the English speaking uh, nature of it, like you you'd mentioned before. Like, what is the what is the reality here of of because I've seen seen people say, oh, it's about the money. And it's like, well, no, I don't think it's about the money because the UK gives way less than most other European countries, right? So, what I'm is the what is, yeah. So what is the what is this reason that people are using or why do they choose the UK? Like, is it is it, as you said before, like the friends and family connections or the English speaking part? Or is there like a, a family policy or something that makes it better for families? It's, not, it's definitely not a policy. I mean, in general, families do stay together. Um, I mean, in, in, I've been doing research on, the, on these things for about 20 years, as I said, and you know, the, the reasons people give you, they may seem quite bizarre to us. But let's say, for example, you are brought up in a country uh, which is an ex-British colony. You went to school, you were taught English, you did your teaching in English, and you learned about, you know, Shakespeare and football and British novels. And none of these things, you know, drive your, you know, not in, they, it sounds very trivial. They don't in and of themselves drive your decisions. But one of the things people have is a perception. I don't think it's correct, frankly. But people have a perception that the UK is a very tolerant place, a very good place when it comes to justice and human rights. And that if they're going to get an opportunity to build their lives, it's the UK that they're going to do it in. Partly because we've spent several hundred years trotting around the world telling people that that's what we do, telling people we're really good, you know, we're really just and we're really fair and we're really tolerant. 
So we spent a lot of time trying to convince people of that. Again, I'm not convinced that we are necessarily in the history it's of the colonization. Name. Great Britain. Say <laughs> yeah, in Great Britain, exactly. I mean, you come into an airport <laughs> at the moment in the UK and you've got these signs that say Great Britain underneath it. Just like, if you're not confident about something, just because you say it louder and bigger doesn't make it so. Anyway, so I think this, you know, aside from the things that people know about that are familiar, I think there is a sense that this is a country with traditions and values, and that's where they'll get to, to rebuild their lives. I, you know, and that combined with the language, combined with, you know, there, you know, people can't work, they get crap benefits, and the housing is terrible, and the asylum system takes forever. I mean, I can't see that any of those things will attract people. And let's be honest, governments, Labour and the Tories, for the last 20 years have tried to make it as really difficult as possible. You know, one of the things I think is happening potentially is that smugglers are concealing some of this information. So they're basically saying, no, it's fantastic in the UK. So they're reinforcing people's perceptions that this is the best place to be. They don't care whether it is or not. They just want the money. You know, that's what's motivating them. Their motivation is not that this person gets to have a better life. Their motivation is how much money can I make? So um, I wouldn't be surprised if people are telling them things that are not true. But I mean, most people, particularly at the moment, particularly given how negative things are in the UK around, you know, lots of different things, COVID and Brexit and food shortages and HGV, you know, it doesn't strike you as being a place that people would necessarily, if they knew everything about it, would choose to come. Plus the weather's crap. And I can tell you now, one of the things so many refugees tell us is that they had no idea how bad the weather was. Because if you come from a... <laughs> place, no way. It's yeah, it's it's not real. It's trivial, but damp and cold and you don't have a coach and you can't afford heating these are not nice situations to be in you know the idea that it's a party is is not true for any of us least of all if you're in that situation wow that's amazing no one told them about the weather that's a genuine complaint that's it's a genuine complaint it's a genuine complaint well, not a complaint, just a kind of like realization of what. Yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah. No one, no one told us how much it rains. Yeah, no, I, I could understand that. To be fair, I mean, and the the smugglers, I definitely think is an aspect because like you imagine if someone is selling boat tours on the coast, they're not going to say, you know, it's not worth it. You know, don't pay the twenty euros for the boat tour, especially especially when you know if they're charging five hundred pounds, a thousand pounds. Yeah, you know, yeah. you're not you're not going to crap and there's terrible views, are you? You're going to pick it up. You know, it's about to get better. I mean, I was reading something today actually that some of the smugglers are, are telling people, oh, the channel's not very big. It's like a lake. It's just like a small lake. It'll take you twenty minutes to get to the other side. I mean. People have really no idea. You know, would you put your kid on one of those dinghies with 20 other people if you thought you were crossing the biggest shipping lane? You wouldn't. No way. None of us would do that. So people are being told things because they're desperate and because they just want to just stop moving. I mean, a lot of the time, people want to stop moving. They just want to get on with rebuilding their lives. People are tired, exhausted. This is not an easy way to spend your life. And as I said at the beginning, lots of people have been moving or moving on for many years. Their kids are getting older. You know, they just want it to be over. And so they're like, okay, fine. We'll throw the roll the dice, the final roll of the dice. And then look what happens. You know, they end up, you know, whatever. You know, just yeah. it's, hard, it's hard to even conceive of that experience. But, you know, 20 25,000 people have drowned in the waters of Europe since 2014. This is not new. You know, there's been 1,500 people die even the beginning of the year in the Mediterranean. We don't even hear these stories anymore. You know, when we had Lampedusa six or seven years ago, it was big news. It's not news anymore. Aileen Curdy walked up on a beach. People were very sympathetic for about three days, and then they all wanted tougher controls. You know, people's ability to put themselves into that position to somebody to have to make that decision of, do I sit in this wet, damp tent with no food with my child, or do I put them on a boat and hope we have something better? You know, I don't think people can even conceive of having to make that choice. It's not a choice. No. It's, you know, it's something none of us would ever have to want to do, but that's what people are doing. That's what people are doing. Because the people who have money and have contacts, they come on a plane and claim when they get to the UK. They don't sit on those, on those beaches waiting for a boat. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to sort of move towards um, wrapping up, the, the, the last questions I have are what 
if anything, have the UK government proposed as potential fixes? Like, are they just burying their head in their in the sand? Is there like you mentioned talk of um, moving the an office or some sort of I don't know facility or people to Calais in order for people to be a lot allowed to legally seek asylum there. Um, is there like plans for maybe more funding in order to process the things quicker? Is there maybe plans to allow them to work? What have they talked about, if anything? These are like very sensible ideas, but unfortunately, none are on the table. So the idea of processing the claim in France, that's come from the French. The, U, the UK, I'd be very surprised if they'd buy that idea, but that's a UK, that's a French suggestion. I think it's a very a damn good suggestion, frankly, but I'd be surprised if the British go for it because they say it will act as a pull factor in some way. Um, no, what they've, do, what they've done so far is basically give the French £56 million and said, sort this problem out for us. So put some people on the beach, you know, put some more fences up, uh, do whatever you have to do, but stop them coming. So now Priti Patel is pretty pissed off that the French haven't done that because, in fact, the French can't do that. You can't legally stop someone from leaving a country. That's not, you know, you can stop people from entering, but you can't stop them from leaving. So the French can't do that anyway, but somehow the British government seems to think they can. Um, and now they're talking about, you know, giving more money to group for security, putting more patrol boats to be able to intercept the boats in the channel, it's all about control and it's all about borders. Nothing's changed, nothing else is on the table. Uh, safe entry legal sort of routes aren't on the table. Increased resettlement is not on the table. Um, they were talking about sending people to Albania for them to have their claims processed there. And the Albanians said, no thanks, we're not really interested in that idea either. Um, you know, as I said before, Priti Patel has the idea of wave machines, uh, nets. I mean, these are all just laughable solutions to a problem that is not going away. So the, the, the solution on the, the table at the, at the moment that's the best idea so far is the French, suggesting that the British go over there, see if people have got, you know, if you've got kids, like you know, we're talking 12, 13, 14 year olds, sitting in a camp in Calais who have got parents or uncles in the UK with status, why aren't those kids being reunited? It's crazy. So first of all, get out there and see who's got connections. See who's got people already in the UK that they need to be reunited with. Let those people in and then work out from the rest whether or not they have a, a claim for asylum that should be dealt with in the UK. That's the only way forward right now. Well, fingers crossed there's some sort of movement on, on it. I mean, I, I'm not going to die holding my breath based on what you've said about how long you've been working in this, but um yeah we can always hope for things to get better um so yeah thanks it's not going away yeah yeah unfortunately i mean it would help if we weren't you know supplying the weapons or starting the wars ourselves but well we didn't need to go uh, down that route but yes there are plenty of other other drivers of this that we have some fingers in i'm sure yeah yeah, unfortunately. But anyway, um, I really want to thank you for your time. Um, you've definitely given me a much better grasp of, of what the problem is. And hopefully the people who have listened um, will have, you know, learned something and got, got some uh, better understanding of what's of what is actually really happening. Um, yeah. So I, I want to thank you for your time. It's yeah, thanks for the opportunity because it's, you know, as I said before we started, it's rare that you get the opportunity to have this much of a detailed conversation. Normally it's just snippets or little kind of, you know, sound bites to try and kind of fit into an existing story. And I think it's great to be able to discuss it in more detail. So thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. I mean, that's that's what this thing that I'm trying to do is. I don't like the sound bites. I think, you know, we have the ability to make tech or make yeah detailed, lengthy conversations. Like, why shouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But so, yeah. um, is there anything you want to point people towards of your work or anything before before we uh, before we go? Well, it depends. I mean, if, if people want to follow me on Twitter, I often post stuff, including links to work and stuff. I've just done a big th Twitter thread on uh, lots of my published work over the last 20 years. With, it's all free and accessible that people can read. Um, I run this really big project called, um, oh, what the name of it? <laughs> MyTech. Sorry, M-I-D-E-Q. So it's Migration for Development and Equality. It's trying to see migration as a more positive thing. So there's uh, information from mydeck.org. Um, uh, but yeah, otherwise people are always very welcome to, to, to find me and send me an email. 
I mean, I always provide people with material or answers. I also get quite abusive emails, but I'm happy to deal with those too. So, <laughs> so yeah, people are very welcome to be in touch if they want to be. Hmm. Okay, well, I will put the links for that stuff in the description below. So um, thanks very much. Great. Thank you. Have a good evening. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate you tuning in and making it all the way to the end of the show. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.